Welcome to All The Things, a podcast for moms seeking an inspired life. Hi, I'm your host, Lisa Chin. I am a writer and a coach, and my most passionate truth is that the world needs the real you. That's why I created this podcast, to discover all the things that make us who we are, because the better we understand ourselves, the more good we can do in the world. So let's do that together. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of All The Things. I am your host, Lisa Chin, and I am really excited to have Dr. Joni Terizi this week as our guest. Um, and before we get started, I want to first acknowledge that I am speaking and podcasting from the unceded and traditional land of the Nipmuc and Massachusetts people. And I share a land acknowledgement before every episode. I think it's important to acknowledge the whole truth. Um, and all sides of it. And so to give a quick introduction on Dr. Joni Terizi, who I know is Joni, we've known each other for a little bit. Um, She is a mind-body wellness practitioner, coach, and writer. As a former school librarian for under-resourced populations, Joni believes firmly in the power of communities to encourage well-being and enact healing. She has completed various trainings in yoga, Reiki, hypnosis, wellness coaching, as well as um, receiving a death doula certification. She was the president of the Midwest End of Life Doula Collective and is a member of the National End of Life Doula Alliance. Joni explored children's mindfulness for her dissertation and received her doctorate in mind-body medicine from Saybrook University, where she pursued her interest in healing modalities and human thriving. Hi, Joni. Hi, Lisa. I'm so excited for this conversation. Me too. I feel like um, we talk up so much about life and ignore this part of life, which is death um, mm-hmm. and, and everything associated with it. So this is, I'm just like really jazzed up for this. The, um, I wanted to start the conversation off with a kind of like level setting everyone. We've known each other for... Oh, almost I think over 10 years now, um, on and off, we've kept in touch. We've met each other through our health coaching certification. And um, I've always respected the way, you know, your, your views on from your ex- personal experiences um, before you even started your work around death and end of life, I guess, might be the more appropriate term. Um, but your, your views on it, um, from a personal level. And it's just, I've always connected with it. So I've always appreciated that about you. Thank you. And kind of like to start off the conversation, I wanted to ask you about unlearning. That's the season's theme. And I'd love to hear kind of what you're unlearning or maybe one of your larger unlearnings in life. Yeah. uh, I might even say that this is perhaps my largest unlearning in life. Um, So the basic uh, background to my interest in end of life, death and grief is that my father died when I was six months old, um, very suddenly in his sleep. Uh, And he was 30 years old at the time. So I grew up, as I say, not an immigrant to grief, that every conscious memory I have was in the after. So most people have a before and an after to significant loss. uh, And that is not how I would categorize my experience and losing someone so important to my existence so young. um, It's so interesting to me that I never grieved. So by the time I was six, it was six years ago when I was 10, it was 10 years ago. And I imagine that for a 10 year old, a decade ago is just ancient history, right? It's before every single memory I have. And by the time I was 20, it was 20 years ago. And it wasn't until my thirties that I actually looked at my life. I looked at what was happening, what wasn't happening and the ways that I was feeling. And I realized that I had never grieved my father. And so I've learned a lot about grief in the last several years of my life from a completely different angle, even though this was something that was with me the whole time, pretty much. What, 
finally brought that realization about. Hmm. I'm not sure exactly. I've always tried to connect with a really missing part of myself. And I don't know if that's my self-identity or how um, intricately woven we are with our parents. And there was just something missing in my life. I would say that now when I look back at my life story, I think of the times when I was depressed as a teenager and as a young adult, and I don't think it was a depression. I think it was grief trying to make its way through, trying to be integrated in my life. And while it's easy to look at the symptomology or the way um, that harder moments were presenting themselves in my life and call it depression, but I think in my experience looking at my life, I think it was more grief than depression. And what would you say? And that actually is just really interesting. Um, If you think about like trauma in the body and all of that, that makes total sense. What would you say has shifted since you went through that process of grieving? It's so interesting because when you say went through the process of grieving, my mind immediately asks myself, is it over? (laughs) I I don't, I don't quantify it in that way of like, that is a thing I have now done. Uh, The way I, the way I, mm, the way I generally talk about grief is that loss changes the shape of who we are. And grief is the process of getting to know the new shape of oneself. But then I think that's kind of uh, interesting when I think of my own loss experience where there only is the new shape. Um, so what? how has my life been different? So what I talk about rather than getting over grief or getting through grief or a lot of the words we use in our culture and society around grief, um, the words that work better for me are integrating grief. I feel more integrated acknowledging this part of myself in a way that isn't there or wasn't there and how much acknowledging how much absence, his absence or just his absence and the presence of the understanding of life's fragility. Those are very aligned and um, interwoven in my life. Uh, I think living in a grief avoidant culture, I definitely internalized grief avoidance and therefore I was avoiding a huge part of myself. So what do I notice that's different now is I feel less unintegrated. I feel more whole and I feel Uh, it's hard to put into words, but the only words coming to me are, I feel less like there's energy leaking out somewhere. I feel less like there's this thing that's trying to be felt that I'm avoiding. um, When I just give myself permission to engage with it. That's really beautiful. Thank you. You said the words grief avoidant culture. Tell me more about that. (laughs) We don't like to look at endings as a culture. So what I often uh, point to is there's so many endings in our day. You know, the last sip of coffee in your mug is an ending. Um, The end of a Zoom call or a meeting is an ending often we're leaning so far forward into the next thing. Oh, I got to go from this because the next thing. Not that I think we should have a funeral for a mug of coffee or something, but just looking directly at the ending and acknowledging it. Um, So that's something that I sometimes will do is, okay, now towards the ending of something, like feeling that the ending is there and looking directly at the ending instead of turning our backs on the endings and moving towards something else. In our culture, as a a larger society in this country, we we get a few days off of work when someone significant in our life dies, or maybe a week, and we 
talk about going back to getting back to how we were before a loss. And I don't believe that there is a getting back to, I, I believe that deep loss fundamentally changes the shape, as I said before, of who we are and we can definitely thrive in the new shape, but it takes some learning. And again, I would call that learning the process of grief. And I think there's so much lost in a communal approach to grief. So um, when there's a great loss in my family, um, you know, you might say, oh, I'm sorry for your loss, right? You might, there's a distance though. You're not, you, we aren't living next door in the, in the 200 person village that we might've lived in, in history, where you've also seen this person every day and you are, you are feeling the loss with me instead of um, sort of looking at me and my loss. And there's this, I often talk, I talk to many grieving people and people often feel like it's almost like I have this contagious disease. Like if I am grieving, you want to stay over as far away as you can and don't mention it. And, uh, and for a grieving person, I mean, the grief is just so completely present for most people. I, 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 when I make statements about grief, I would always say it's, my experience is that it's most, but not all people. So I wouldn't make broad sweeping assumptions, but um, I think there's something in this inability to look at endings, um, small allowances for grief, and then getting back to how things were, and sort of this grief is over there, keep it away from me approach, um, when I think that the small endings in our lives actually give us the opportunity to practice grief. It's silly to grieve over a cup of coffee, although many people are like, wait, no, I'm so sad when it's over. But looking at an ending and being able to be with the feelings one has around endings, no matter how uh, uncomfortable they might be, gives us the ability to practice for the bigger losses that will inevitably happen in a well-lived life. I'm processing all of this because I am, I've actually said to myself, I am not good with finishing things. And I have not put it in this context before. So this is going to give me a lot of food for thought as I reflect on this conversation. So I, I love that you identify also that we no longer are in this com- these communities because that's something I, I often think about is how things kind of used to be, how may, perhaps we could have been doing things for, you know, how we used to do things for a long time and how we could possibly still be doing them if we still had this structure of community around us. Um, I think that there were, I feel like I, I may make it very, like maybe too positive. Um, but when I think about community, it's there are just so many positives around it, right? And this idea of like being able to grieve with someone, it's interesting because when I think about like with my family, when we've had to grieve a loss, there's almost like a hierarchy in a sense, like the nuclear family kind of they're there. Um, and then as the grand, you know, the, the great niece or whatever, like maybe we're there for the day, but but there's these almost like circles, concentric circles of like layers of people. When you talk about it from a communal aspect and to say, I'm with you in your grief, that is so powerful. And it, and it doesn't, separate you from the person who's grieving. Now, what would you say to someone who has, has had a friend or maybe even a, maybe not a close family member who's passed and they're, they're talking to someone who is grieving, how would, what's the best language to use in those instances or some examples of language? Yeah, so I've I've been trying on new language and I let people know I'm trying it on and you know, I, I think there's this 
when we come from a place of great care, a person can feel the care and we can work it out. So the, the phrase I've been using recently is, um, there's a replacement for, I'm sorry for your loss. We are accustomed to saying that. It's just sort of like, oh, that's the easy phrase to pull out. I am, it comes from a place of caring. And I really think it's a very distancing um, phrase. So what I've been trying on instead is saying, I'm feeling sorrow with your sorrow. It doesn't take away or compare sizes or, um, or distance. And it puts my sorrow right next to yours. Right. If I came in, we we're in such a cheer up society and sometimes you, you just need to be with the grief. So if I came in song and dance, like, Oh, I'm over here, you know, that wouldn't work. And the distance doesn't work, but being right there with someone so that they're not alone in their grief, um, is really important. So, uh, some other beliefs I have about grief that come in that uh, vein of unlearning is I don't believe that grief is a clinical condition. So many times we, um, we go to therapy for grief, which is totally fine. And I think the frame of looking at grief as something that needs therapy is, uh, it misses something for me because grief is not a problem. Grief is, a correlate with love. We love, we lose, and we grieve. And the best capacity we've always had for tending to our grief is, I believe, community, is others being there with us. My own isolation um, in grief has been the hardest part of grieving for me. So there's that, what would, what would you say to someone? What I have been saying is, I feel sorrow with your sorrow, and so far, it's landed every single time I've tried it out. I, and I, you know, I, I give that space for the experiment. And in terms of hierarchy of loss, what I tend to say as well is that all grief matters. All grief is here to be felt. This goes back to a memory of I lost my first grandparent. I was very fortunate to have all four in my lifetime. And I lost my first one when I was 14. And I remember standing there at the funeral and my cousins were much closer they lived with my grandparents at this time and um they weren't crying and i was just feeling so much emotion and i was crying and i remember as a young person kind of like should i be asking myself should i be crying is it okay to cry should i be hiding my crying is you know um sort of learning what is culturally acceptable here, both familially and societally about like, where does my grief have, have a place? And um, now, again, on a straight level, it doesn't actually matter if they lived with him and knew him better. Um, my deep grief could just be expressing itself differently in that moment. And that could, I would tell a young person that's totally fine. Looking back, I also recognize that was my first time standing on the land right where my father's body was buried as well. And I didn't know that as a young person, but we've, we've discussed, you know, the body keeps the score and, and how the body knows what's profoundly impacted it. And there I was standing at my father's grave for the first time. Um, and so, so whose whose grief matters to me everybody's um whether one person is crying or not in a moment it's not a measure of anything it's just it it's it is how something is expressing in a moment uh just recently a friend of mine texted me because she knew that i was a person who would be open to this about um she conducted a, a funeral for a friend's dog and she was feeling really sad and she was saying, you know, the only person I could really talk about this with would be the friends who lost the dog and they're distraught. Like I can't, I can't give my grief to them. And, and so I'm turning to you to be with someone in this grief. And um, I think there's something deep about losing pets that I didn't recognize myself as a young person who had lost a parent that I recognize um, much more with my sweet dog sitting here next to me. Um, 
And, and again, it's like, someone might say, oh, someone else's dog died, you know, why are these emotions welling up for you? And I think, um, first of all, loss does often bring up sadness. And one loss often brings up many other losses. So what a person is dealing with at any one time is not always clear. And so my response to that of like, who's closer? Well, you know, it could be profoundly sad for someone that they're that their great aunt died or, or for a young person figuring out how they respond to loss or the, the well of emotions that just is opened up by loss um, or caregivers losing people. I, I, I don't measure it. All loss matters and all loss needs tending to a certain extent. That brings me to like the work that you're, you're doing now the Mm -hmm. end of life doula work is that correct Mm -hmm. and so can you describe a little bit of that I imagine maybe how you support your friend in those moments was was very similar to kind of the work that you're doing in this um in this realm but could you describe a little bit more of like what an end of life doula is because I think that the audience probably has heard of the word doula in on in terms of birth or postpartum Yeah. So a doula is often uh, defined as someone who, I believe, (laughs) uh, as someone who is of service, right, of being there as an emotional support. Um, And that our our culture is a little bit more familiar with that in the birth um, world and supporting uh, the dying as they are exiting the world is is what an end of life doula does. And uh, what I'm what I've found since completing my training is often people um, don't know as much what an end of life doula does. And they, the work I've done has usually been in the last few days of one's life. Um, End of life doulas do a wide array of emotional um, support and handholding through, through uh, when one has um, an extended end of life period, because obviously if it's sudden, you can't um, bring in an end-of-life doula. Uh, and I've often found myself more supporting the people around the person who's dying rather than the person who's dying themselves because I've usually only encountered, uh, pretty much only encountered that person when they're not responding anymore. Um, so that wasn't what I envisioned when I embarked on this work. And I've discovered that my main focus in this realm, rather than working directly with, with the dying, um, is, is the grieving that I, uh, as you, as you pointed out in supporting my friend, I love to sit with and support the, the bereaved and the grieving, um, bereavement being the period immediately following a loss and um, grief being perhaps a life's journey um, or showing up much, much later after the loss. So the direct work that I've been doing more is what I call grief coaching, um, which may or may not be for uh, loss to death of human life to death, but could be for a variety of losses, human or not. What are the similarities that tie all these varieties of grief? I would say something's not there that we want to be there. The the main thing that I've been noticing about the people I've been coaching is that most of them are grieving the life not lived. I thought this was going to go a different way. I thought by now this would look different than it does. And I think that undercurrent is a, is very present and not, not looked at in the same way. And then it's, it's an ambiguous grief as well, right? Like it's this, it's very clear when one loses a person um, of 
something that needs to be tended. Although I would say again, usually what happens is that that's compounded by other losses that haven't been looked at. But the the grief for the life not lived, which like even as I say it, I can I can feel the sort of gravitas of that in my own body, right? The there's something very human in that. Again, also not very talked about. Um, and I would say that, you know, uh, even when I think about my grandmother who lived to be 100, 100 years and 13 days, as I always like to, to quantify, um, there was something really beautiful and poignant about her living that long. And uh, sometimes I just, I really wish she was here you know, wishing it was different. And I don't, not in a magical kind of wishing, but I, I deeply miss her. I deeply miss her presence as a breathing being on this planet and, and her love. Um, and um, that grief was, was clearer for me, maybe than some of the other griefs in my life, because, because it, it, uh, it happened in a way that my mind can wrap itself around easily. Um, yeah. Hmm. You said something before, and I'm trying to recall it, where it makes me think that the, the duality of life and death and being able to hold both of those ideas. Like you said before, you know, you can wish for someone to be here and you can also mourn them at the same time. I think that's what you said. It it makes me think of this idea of like death makes things so, it's almost like upheaved in a way that it requires you to have some sort of capacity to be able to hold all of that. And when you're bereaved or grieving, I imagine then that's really hard to do. So not, so you're grieving the loss, but then you're also having to manage, I guess this is what you say, the new shape of who you are and perhaps how you see the world. And then, and that's may require that someone to be by your side to help you through that. Yeah. I would say that loss is really clarifying that we know what matters when we know its vulnerability and its fragility. And this is a totally different conversation, I think, but when I look at the last two years <laughs> and currently, um, there's all this uncertainty. And I think life has always been deeply uncertain. And I think people who are alive today for the last, this is just throwing out a number, 40, 50 years, life has been relatively extremely stable. And so our experience is that, well, it should continue to be stable, but I think throughout time, you know, is someone going to come home at the end of the day has always been a question mark. Are my children going to survive? That has always been a question mark. I'm, I am working with someone who has lost a child and, uh, and I, I said what I thought was a really empathetic comment about how, well, you know, a parent shouldn't outlive their child. You know, like that's not the unnatural order of things. And this person said to me, are you kidding? Different wording probably, but are you kidding throughout history? Parents lost half of their brood. And so child loss is marginalized in our society today, but was ever present then and throughout then being always right. And, um, and I think of it and I think, oh my gosh, how horrific. Like my risk, my gut response. I mean, just like thinking of my grandparents having lost their son and, and, and how profound of a loss it is to lose a child. And when it was more common, it was less isolating because so many people had experienced it. So they could share that knowing. And there's, um, I myself am not a parent, so I can only imagine how deeply a parent loves their child already and the ever-present knowledge of their true vulnerability is so clarifying of what is really important 
And I could sort of list a whole host of things that I think are not important that we focus on, forgetting that anyone who is here today might not be here tomorrow. My father, when he died, had, as far as we know, nothing wrong. The autopsy showed nothing. And he was here one day, 30 years old, and not here the next. And so, uh, you know, that, that's really clarifying. And I've grown up with that clarity. You know, when I was a teenager, I didn't, I always was pretty um, health conscious because, oh, you and I met in a health coaching course, right, as young, younger people. But I, uh, I've always taken care of this body because what if the same thing happened to me? You know, when I was 30, most people hit that age, their first parent died much later in life. I was 30 and I was like, oh, what if this was all I got was this time? It's very clarifying. And to also respond to your last point, I think that when we, you, you were saying, you were repeating something that you were trying to remember from what I said about um, holding a, a duality in grieving. And I think that what we lose culturally and personally by being grief avoidant is access to our full vibrancy. So this is something I would add to a response to one of your earlier questions of what have I gained from grieving? And I feel in my mind, I see our um, emotions on a whole spectrum. And when we cut off the end, that's more challenging with the grief and sort of the, what we might call darker emotions, um, we also lose the, the brightness and we lose the vibrancy and having access to our full range of feeling again is not cutting something off. It is, it is that process of, 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 and I, and these are things I would never say to someone who lost a parent yesterday, right? I wouldn't say, oh my gosh, you know, your life is going to be so much more vibrant now. Like that's, that's not what it is. It's, um, it's sort of like, uh, I don't know why this is coming to mind, but like how, you know, the quest makes the soldier soldier worthy or the knight knight worthy. I don't know enough about those types of stories, but sort of the journey creates the hero. Um, oh, I don't even like that wording, but there's something in going through grief, like really allowing the grief to happen that contributes to that vibrancy and when one experiences deep loss and is suddenly a new shape i mean who you were is gone too you know the day my grandmother died after a hundred years of life i was no longer the grandchild to a living human so i was no longer someone's granddaughter someone who could call them you know and and uh that's fundamentally okay, right? Like it doesn't affect the things that can and can't happen in my life other than talking to my dear grandmother the same. Um, and when one's, not only did I experience the, the loss of grandma not being there, I also experienced the loss of myself as, a, as an identity, as a granddaughter. So when grief feels like I might break, <laughs> I can't handle this it's because i don't know this shape of myself as a not granddaughter and something in me is is kind of shattered in a way and i just need someone to either metaphorically or physically hold my hand and tell me it's going to be okay until so it is because it will be but the distance between here and there is much easier to travel not alone I'm just shaking my head. Yes. <laughs> I hadn't thought of this idea of the spectrum, but it makes total sense as I think of on, for me personally, the to have, I want to say made the attempt, but to have really sunk a little bit more into the process of grieving a couple of losses in my life. It does expand you it does give you that breath because part of it is i if i i feel like if i don't grieve i'm ignoring something and there's almost like this guilt 
I have to like being alive and to, to having certain things. And that guilt, almost on like a very subconscious level, prevents me from feeling joy and happiness and to be able to achieve the things that maybe this person has never been able to achieve before. Yeah. Yeah. There's so much. I don't like to think of us in a us humans in a in a productivity lens, but there's so much more we're capable of when we have access to our full vibrancy. And what I mean by that is um, even so much more that we're capable of in our humaning, in being a good friend, in being there for people younger than us, people older than us, however we're relating with them. I would 100% agree with you that I I often do think of of people in productivity, unfortunately, which is a habit that I'm trying to depart from. At the same time, I also recognize what you're saying about this idea, like thinking of creativity, which has been, which a lot of systems try to push into a productivity lens, but people are just creative in general, right? That's just how we're we're built. Um, And so when you have this vibrancy, then you're able to feel into it. And I think of, you know, art that comes from this process and, the work, like even the work that you're doing is an art. I mean, I see it as, as like, you wouldn't be able to do this if you hadn't gone through the process of it. Well, I, I think the greatest thing I have to offer others is my presence, which is something that I've worked on. Um, well, as you mentioned earlier, a variety of ways over the years and I'm willing to be there, you know, and that, um, does feel like one of the most yeah creative it 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 is a kind of creative it's relational creativity um right of how we meet each other and a question i often ask and don't have an answer to particularly is like is can we be there for each other really be there for each other without having gone through our own stuff the the peachy life that many of us might imagine that has, you know, no struggles in it. And and it's just easy. And we, we get what we want. Would we, would we have the capacity to be there? I don't, I don't know. Can you describe um, kind of, I don't know if it's a process or some examples of ways that you support your clients? So what I try to do with my clients is uh, I have two approaches and one is making space for grief. So whether or not we choose to grieve when I believe that when we are grief avoidant, it leaks around other places. So one thing in particular that I recognize about my own life is having lost my father so young that when I've gone through breakups, I believe that the intense grief I've felt the relationship was actually my father lost grief sort of bubbling up that you know my response to certain breakups in my life didn't quite make sense until I look at it through the grief lens I'm like, oh of course that makes sense you know um so grief will leak its way through and uh and so making space for grief if you know that you're going to grieve with me on Wednesday at 10 a.m then it might allow you to focus more on other things and make space for the grief when it's time to grieve. And so that, um, you know, one client in a session wanted to cry, but the, the trust hadn't quite been built up in our relationship. It wasn't distrust. It was just, we were work we were growing and working together. And, um, and then we worked together to the point where this person was able put just to cry, just to feel their grief and not be alone in it. And this was over zoom. Um, and, then so that's the one the one aspect of making space for it feeling it not being alone with it and the other is well my 
framing of grief integration. Well, how do you want to integrate your grief? Like, how do you want to take steps? And this is the really tricky part because uh, I don't believe in taking steps to to get through the grief or to move it out or to to push it through. Right? There's um, it's it's ironic to me that my approach to grief is sort of in opposition to, in my mind, our forward-leaning culture, and yet coaching is very forward-leaning, right? So the way I think of it is more, how do we move with grief? How do we engage with it? How do we integrate it? How do we feel what is here? And so um, together, the client and I will come up with a variety of incredibly creative strategies. What always just really inspires me and blows my mind is how people want to integrate their own grief. At what they want to incorporate into their daily or weekly lives, doesn't have to be all the time, to make a space for what is already there. And so it goes, it goes between those two things. One is feeling it and being together. You're not alone as you feel it. And two is how do I integrate it in my daily life? And to me, there's no rush in that integration. It'll take the time it takes. Mm-hmm. I really enjoy how you talk about making time for it, which it feelings, I feel like feelings just kind of come when they want to come. At the same time, we go to therapists and we go to, you know, we schedule coffees with friends or whatever it may be to process things. So it makes sense that there's this ability to, I've never thought of being able to, I don't want to say conjure up the grief, but to be able to invite it at a certain point. As you were talking, I think a lot in images that are very entertaining for me. So as (laughs) you were talking, the image that came to my mind is grief is always there, whether you're looking at it or not. So making time for it is the way I see it is looking directly at it as opposed to looking away from it. So I think, you know, for a lot of people who are looking away from it, it's still right behind you at all times, right? So as you were talking, the image I got was grief is like, I see it as like a person standing outside your door and it's just standing in front of your house all the time. And so it'd be kind of awkward and weird, right? If there's a person standing outside your door, but the way I see it is, okay, Monday at noon, you're going to have an hour to come inside. And so what would it be like for this imaginary character to have that hour, to know that they have some time inside, and then the rest of the time they stand outside the door? And how might that change grief's demeanor, <laughs> right? How might that change its space when it says, okay, I have this space to be? Um, one of my favorite picture books, as uh, I think you said at the beginning, and as you know, I used to be an elementary school librarian, and so picture books, I think, can be so beautifully metaphorical. Um, There's one of my favorite ones is about a dragon that uh, wanted to be noticed. So the kid sees the dragon, the mom says, there's no such thing, there's no such thing. The dragon gets bigger and bigger and bigger, runs away with the house on its back and and, uh, causes all kind of havoc. And the mother is still saying to the child, there's no such thing as a dragon. And finally, the kid says, there is, there is a dragon. It just wanted to be noticed. And at that moment, the dragon shrinks down to, you know, the size of a dog or a cat, cat. And it's there, but a manageable size. And to me, that is so illustrative of all strong emotions and in particular grief of acknowledging it, knowing that it's there. Um, it's kind of tricky because you don't want to be like, okay, I know you're there and I'll leave, right? It's like, it's again, it's that welcoming it in as it is. Um, and it's, and grief is so tidal, I think, T-I-D-A-L, tidal, like a tide, it, it goes in and out, and at times it's stronger, and again, this is how I would reflect on my, my childhood depression as waves of grief of, you know, hey, this isn't fair, (laughs) it's not. Mm. When you were talking about that image of kind of grief at the door, Would you say the integration of grief then is grief kind of being living in the house at some point and being able to have dinner with it sometimes, or it has its own room or like the kind of carrying on that imagery, like what what would integration look like? Mm. 
Yeah, I'm like, <laughs> as you're talking, I'm like, it's like, how does this fit in my image? Yeah, I would think it's sort of like, well, this is this is weird and gets less, I think, uh, <laughs> in sync with how we live our lives, but it would just come in and out as it pleases. And it would be like, oh, you're here. Let me set another seat, seat at the dinner table. But then that goes right back to my framing of how I envisioned the 200 person little village or community where um, rather than making plans all the time as we do, you know, when you feel like being social, you go into the town square. And when you feel like being alone, you go into your house. And so there's this very natural uh, flow and management of one's social energies, which I feel like is my energy feels really scattered by like making plans. And then when the time comes, do I feel like being with people or not is irrelevant. I go and do the thing. And so I imagine when you were just saying that, I imagined being in this small village and then grief just wandering in and out of my house as it pleases um, without disruption. That sort of like, oh, you're here. Well, I was going to read a book for this hour, but now I'll have tea with you. Mm -hmm. You know, oh, I'm feeling really deeply sad. That's okay. I mean, I making space for the okayness of a wave to show up. I mean, at this, this point, my father has been gone for 38 and a half years. And I've had people throughout my life judge, oh, why are you still sad about that? Well, it's very sad to me. I don't need to dwell in that sadness, but when it shows up, I'm okay engaging with it. Mm -hmm. I mean, I've, I've been judged for crying on his death anniversary. And that's, the, to me, a sign of a really, really deeply grief-avoidant culture where, well, how is that? How is that? What, what message does that send? And when yeah. you say we live on in others' hearts, well, I don't know my father. I can't remember him. But honoring his absence is how I know uh, to know that his existence happened on this planet. Mm. That's very beautiful. When you talk about someone who may judge another person for for grieving and how that touches on this this grief avoiding culture this culture built on productivity it, it, it seems like it's death is very much an inconvenience i think than it is a part of the natural order of things i think also i mean the way that especially the U.S. considers births, right? Like any sort of um, anything that takes you off the assembly line and makes you stop and also reevaluate and and see the world in a new way. Perhaps they don't, you know, they they can't afford that in a sense. And how do we create a culture that isn't grief avoidant? Oh. <laughs> Solve it overnight, please. <laughs> right, 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 right. Uh, yeah, as you were talking, was, the phrase that came to mind was uncontrollable interruptions, right? Even if you're planning to have a child and it comes some number of weeks early and you haven't tidied things up in areas of your life and, and uh, death's uncontrollability, you know, I, I often think I'll, I'll look at an elderly person and I don't know who will die first. I don't really know. I have hopes for the natural order, but that's, I don't take it for granted. Um, how do we, yeah, see, I'm like, how do we, can you phrase that again? Yeah, how do we create a culture that isn't grief avoidant? How do we embrace it in a certain way or support each other in it? Yeah. When you say, how do we create a culture that feels really big to me, right? Mm. I don't, I don't have a, a sense of how I can change everything out there. I really take to heart how I can change it in here, in my immediate sphere. Um, and I would say it's honoring all endings. It's 
looking directly at things as they end more, even if it's just uh, like wrapping things up with awareness, endings with awareness um, in small ways and changing how say I want to say we but then it's like the only we the only person I can change is me (laughs) how do I how do I show up for those who are grieving how do I make space for their grief how do I make space for my own grief um and different cultures uh identify what a mourner is for periods of time as far as I know up to a year so how do we look at that I'm sitting here and trying to answer your question and I, and I keep bumping in my mind up against it, how, how big culture is. And I, I guess I just, my response would be, I'm going to sit here with those who are grieving. <laughs> like that's, that's, that's what I've got. The tool I've got is my heart and I'm willing to show up with that. And, um, and I would add, it's not the only thing I do and don't think that I could do this in a, in a, in a sort of 40 workout, 40 hour work week model. Um, I think, um, I think having kids involved with end of life, care, bereavement, mourning rituals, I find that really important. Um, people used to die in the home until very recently so as did as they were born at home um so i think that uh and then they start asking questions so young when they know um i think that's really important uh i think i have this like kind of gut feeling especially with the pandemic um, that we're moving into a place where more people will be actually tending to the grief and talking about it. And there are so many bereaved people out there at this moment, and at all moments. Um, I think a cultural shift would be making making space for that and maybe some education about how to be with others. This is something... I tend to find people who've um, been bereaved young in life and uh, just automatically bond with them. And so some conversations I've had with a few of them are, we have to have some resources out there for people who haven't experienced deep loss or how do I meet someone else? Or even if you have yourself and haven't dealt with the loss or can't face your own loss, perhaps even more, like how do I show up? How do I really show up for someone else? How do I be a resource for someone else so that they are not grieving alone. Um, that, that type of work, I feel like I didn't give a clear answer. I sort of wandered around the, the garden of answers that I have. <laughs> well, one thing that you said, and I think it goes back to the fact that you went through your own process of grief. I think it feels like the first thing that we can all do is really take a moment and maybe make an appointment with our grief and see what it is that we're holding on to or that we're not, we haven't fully felt because we can't offer others what we haven't been able to kind of figure out on our own, I think. Yeah. Oh, a way I would say that is, uh, you know, the absence, the, the loss carves us out. And what do we put in that space? But I have, ho- I have all this space now to hold your loss. Right. I have space to hold you by what has been carved out of me. And do I wish it had been carved out of me? My goodness, all the loss I've faced in my life. I, I don't wish that any of it has had happened or would happen to anyone in the ways it's happened to me. And just remembering that, you know, I, I will often attribute to that, to being human when I imagine my losses and I can really imagine you sitting there having felt all these losses. Well, I just, I, I just want to, you know, sort of like take you in <laughs> like, and, and, and make sure you're not alone in that. And unless of course, you know, some people do like to be alone in it. Um, 
And I know a few people who've grieved and made that very clear. And, and as I say, you know, grief is very, it's, it is individual. I, I, uh, someone asked me recently, how do you teach people how to grieve or some, something like that? And I say, it's so individual and it's very much based on people's frameworks of the world. Someone's spiritual framework and what they believe happens after a person dies has so much to offer, um, in terms of what they might draw upon as a resource or what framework they're looking at things for. So to me, I don't think there is a way to grieve. I think there is a way that each being grieves. Um, I'm being in touch with that. I think that the way that you speak about end of life and death and grief is more needed in this culture. And I'm just so happy that you agreed to come on and share this conversation because I know we've talked privately about these matters. Um, but when I, when I created this season, I thought, Oh, I definitely want to talk about this side of life. So thank you. Um, do you have any, well, first, do you have any parting thoughts? as we are ending this conversation? Yes, I do. I do. I, I want to point to the fact that this conversation is about to end, right? So whether it's for you and me right now in the moment that we're recording this or for anyone listening to, to look directly at that for just a moment and to feel what it feels like as something is ending. Mm-hmm. It makes me think of when I grieved the end of the Harry Potter series, mm. I, because I binged them all at once. I didn't read them as they were coming out. So I, I think I spent like an entire winter break reading it all. And then there was this like emptiness that I felt. And I really, I really felt like I was grieving. It was, it was a very bizarre feeling. Um, but I had, it was like, I had carved all this time out in my day for, for the, this book and the series. And then all of a sudden it was gone. And then I had all this space. It's not just that. You were living in a whole other world, right? And you had to come back to this one without that one. I mean, there's, there's so much that, that is grief. Um, and and uh, I think it's just everywhere. <laughs> and I say that, I mean, you can hear the smile in my voice and I, and I laugh. And that is not to make light of it. It is a very intense uh i want to say emotion but i feel like it's more than an emotion the body is involved um deeply and so just to make clear i'm not making light of it and it's everywhere you know not to prolong this conversation although i'd love to (laughs) it does make me think though of times that within moments of grieving you know, at funerals I've attended and all of that, like we end, we end the day with a meal all together and there's laughter and hap- and, and joyfulness. And so we hadn't touched upon this and we, we won't have a chance to this episode. The, that grief isn't the way that I personally see it is that it's, it's not all heavy and dark. There are these moments because of the loss, you can, again, I think it is this duality, right? You can feel like we wouldn't be able to have those dinners together as a family and to be able to share those memories and, and all of that without having been in that, in that period of grieving as well. And I would say with how we are, families are often scattered across the country. How many times I've heard, oh, next time under better circumstances, oh, we should get together, but not like this. And do we? It's, it's so rare. It's so rare. And it does bring us together to laugh mm-hmm. and to eat and to cry together. Mm, wonderful. Um, can you share with the listener where they can find you, learn more about you, and also read some of your writing as well? Yeah. Um, well, I have a variety of websites and um, presences online and the one directly related to this that I am 
just launching as we're recording this is my website www.grieftender.org um, and I also have Grief Tender on Facebook. Uh, I have several websites. You really want all. <laughs> no, you don't need to. I'll have them all yeah. in the show notes. Great. Um, having a main place to go is always a great thing, just in case folks don't actually go onto the show notes. Yeah, great. Well, Joni, thank you so much. This is just, I really hope that this conversation brings to light a topic that we don't talk about enough. And I so appreciate your perspective and your openness to discussing it. Yeah. Thank you for having this conversation with me and for asking such um, thought-provoking questions. Thank you for tuning in today. Living an inspired life is a worthy endeavor. Don't let anyone tell you otherwise. Be sure to subscribe in your preferred podcast player for future real conversations. And if any part of this episode made you think of a friend, let them know that they aren't alone in their journey and share all the things with them. If you'd like to stay in touch, hop on over to lisaforreal.com and sign up for my daily blogs. Or find me on Instagram at Reclaiming Motherhood. See you next time.